my name is Connor Thompson, and today our reading comes out of John chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have eternal life. For God sent not the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He that believeth on him is not judged. He that believeth not hath been judged already, because he hath not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light is come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their works were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hate the light, and cometh not to the light, lest his works should be reproved. But he that does, his, does truth comes to the light, that his works may be made manifest, and that they may be uh, wrought in God. That, sorry, that was the wrong version, but yeah, ESV, hopefully you're able to keep up. And uh, today we're lighting, the, uh, we're lighting the Advent candle of love, I believe. That's right, right? Love. Anyone know? Advent candle of love. Amen. 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 Thank you, Connor. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. Connor filled in last minute because uh, I think the person who was supposed to read was sick. So thank you, Connor. You're awesome. We love you. Uh, hey, well, welcome, guys. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Keith. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, man, I love the Christmas season. We get to slow down. I saw the sun sets at 4.30. Uh, it rises at 7.30. It's so dark right now. So you just, you know, sit inside, watch movies. I don't know. But it's a great time uh, of the year, a great time to reflect. And so today we're going to talk about love. And uh, one of the most famous songs was by the Beatles. And they said, all you need is love, Right? But the problem is, what is love? We all define it differently. Well, there was this movie that talked about love a lot that came out when I was in high school. It was very formative for me and my humor. Um, and anyways, in this movie, there's this guy by the name of Ron Burgundy, and he, he falls in love. He announces to the entire workplace, I'm in love with this woman, okay? And his friends are like, what? So they get back into his office, they close the door, and they're like, Ron, what is love? And he's about to explain it, but there's this guy who's played by the actor Paul Rudd, who looks the same back then as he does today. It's crazy. Uh, but Paul Rudd said, I think I fell in love once, Ron. And he's like, really? Well, why don't you tell us about it? What was, what was her name? And he's like, I don't really remember. And Ron's like, not a good start, but proceed. And he's like, okay, I met this girl at Kmart. She was Brazilian or Chinese, I don't really remember. Uh, but anyways, we like kissed for a couple hours, we parted ways, never saw each other again. <laughs> and Ron's like, I'm pretty sure that's not love. And he's like, dang it, I thought I was in love. And then he goes on to sing, you know, an old rock song to explain what love is. Uh, but here's the reality, church. We're all looking for love. Uh, did you guys know that there are over 109 million songs that have been written about love. That's known. This year alone, 47 million romance novels were sold. It's actually going up every year. Uh, every movie, every book, every song usually has some element of love because people crave love. I would even say we were built for love. Uh, I was talking to Rachel and my wife who work with little kids, and uh, in science, if a baby isn't loved and cared for, uh, it's called, they can develop this thing called failure to thrive, and an unloved infant can actually die if they're not loved. Uh, last week, the Wall Street Journal had this article 
It was fascinating. This is a secular article. It said, most problems in all of society today have one common theme, the, their fatherlessness. This was a crazy statistic. He said, they said, basically, your dad was supposed to be there to love them, but instead your dad abandoned them. And so the rate for dropping out of school, drug addiction, going to jail, ending up in poverty, this study showed all traumatically increased when you aren't loved. Isn't that crazy? So we were made for love. We all long to be loved, to belong, and to be accepted. Here's the problem. We live in a broken world that's naturally cut off from God, and now people are just a shadow of their former selves, and now I would say people are often more dangerous than loving. And so Christmas is hope. It's the greatest love story ever. It's the only love story that can heal you, that can forgive you, that can reconcile you to God, that can give you what you really need, which is to experience and know the holy love of a perfect father. Now, before we jump into the text, I'd love if you guys would pray with me. Jesus, we thank you for this season of Christmas that we can slow down, reflect. And Lord, we're talking about a verse and a topic that everyone talks about, love. But I pray, Jesus, you give us fresh eyes to just see how great your love is, that it would be so great that you would give us your power to understand it, to comprehend it, to taste it, to bring it in. And Lord, that it would change us, that we could be a people that aren't afraid, that things that would normally destroy people, Lord, we could stand firm in your love and it wouldn't destroy us. And we would have love and hope and joy and peace in you. Bless our time. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, guys, so my first point is this. God gives us a new love that gives. I remember when I was 25 years old, I was single, I just came to faith, and I really wanted to get married, all right? And I remember talking to one of my friends, he was also a pastor, and he kind of asked me this crazy question. He was like, well, Keith, why do you want to get married? And I was like, I don't know, like, so someone can like, help me clean and cook and you know all that other stuff, that sounds good, right? And he just looked at me, and he said, Keith, you don't want a wife, you should just hire a maid, and I was like, dang, that's kind of a hard word, right? But he said, marriage is about what you give, not what you get. And I was like, I honestly have no idea what you're talking about, right? I have no idea what love is. I also remember my grandpa giving me some words of wisdom before he passed away. And he said this to me. He said, Keith, you need to marry a giver, not a taker. He said the only way, he was divorced and remarried, but he said the only way marriage can work is if two people come together and have an attitude to give, not get. And so the first year of marriage for me, you can ask my wife, was kind of hard for me because I didn't understand love. I was selfish. See, I thought love was like the things that I love in this world. Like, I love chocolate because it tastes good on my tummy, right? I love movies because they make me laugh. I love electric guitar. It feels good to my soul. And so I always thought love was just something that I would get. Whatever I got, that made me feel good. That's what I love, all right? Selfish love. So everyone really loves friendship, and community until they have to commit to something, right? And then you figure out what love really is, right? So you're friends with everyone until you ask them to help you move into your new house, right? And all of a sudden, everyone has plans. They're out of town. You're like, where, where did they all? They just all disappear, right? Your, your closest friends, all of a sudden, they're gone, right? So as soon as sacrifice and commitment are required, 
people are selfish. They naturally bail. So if you want to get people to help you move, this is what you got to do. You say, hey, I rented this Airbnb property up in the mountains. I paid for the whole thing. It's stocked with food and drinks. Meet at my house in two weeks, and then we'll leave, okay? And they all get excited. You've got your 10 friends. They show up to your house and then say, hey, actually, I canceled. Uh, you guys are going to help me move. It's going to take tomorrow, today and tomorrow. But I know you have nothing planned, so you guys are going to help me move today, right? And this is why the world is full of manipulators, Right? Because we're trying to get people to love us, and we know people are flaky, right? It's just a, it's a broken world. But the truth is, the hard truth, this is why people are hurt. Love hurts. People hurt us. And when we are hurt, we put up our defenses. We put up these walls, and we live in fear. We look at other people and say, they're probably going to hurt me. So the biggest wounds you're going to face in this life are from people you expected to love you, and instead, they let you down. Love was lost. And that's the most painful thing you'll ever experience. And this is why people are cynical of love. You, you talk to so many cynics today. And really, I think cynical people are people who are really just hurting. People who lost love. The more cynical you are, probably the more hurt you are. And we all have it, especially in our culture. So I want us this morning to look at how God redefines love. And we're going to look at how he shocks the world with this definition of love. Let's look at the context before we look at the text. All right, so the context, we're in John chapter 3. And Jesus is talking to this Pharisee, which means he was the most religious you could ever get. Maybe in the history of the world, these were the most religious people. They were very moral. They followed all the rules. He tithed. He gave a lot of money to the church or to the temple synagogue, whatever it was for him. He had a clean diet, avoided all kinds of bad food. He dressed the part. Guys, he even had most of the Bible memorized. All right, he was probably a vegan, this guy, Nicodemus. He probably did yoga. He probably avoided gluten. He probably drove an electric vehicle, okay? No, I'm just kidding. But culturally, in their culture, he did everything right. And so the first shocking thing that Jesus says to Nicodemus is this. He says, Nicodemus, you can't serve God unless you are born again. So that's the context. You have to be born again. And Nicodemus, Nico, he's like, what are you talking about, Jesus? We are Pharisees. We are religious. We serve God. And Jesus is like, no, you can only serve God if God makes you alive by the Spirit. And this was a shocking message to religious people because they realized that all that stuff that they had been doing was not good enough to get right with God. It's shocking. And this is painful. And this is often in the world. The people who oppose Jesus the most are religious people. Because imagine being told all your hard work, all the stuff you've done, your entire life to try to get right with God was a complete waste. Honestly, your response might be shock or anger, right? And that's why they wanted to kill Jesus. So that's the context. It's this nighttime conversation between this religious leader and Jesus, the Son of God, the creator of all the universe. So the first thing that was shocking is when Jesus redefines love. He says this. He started out by saying in verse 16, God so loved the world. Now, why was this shocking to an ancient Jew? See, the Jews knew God as Almighty God. But outside of the Scriptures... There's no Jewish resources that say God loved all the world. 
Maybe he loved creation. There were prophecies about God being the light to the Gentiles. They were far and few. Most of the stuff about the world was that they were sinful and God was going to judge them. So the thought of God loving all the world would have been completely shocking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus would have been like, what? No, 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 God, you have it wrong. Jesus, you have it wrong. God only loves the Jews. And of the Jews, he only loves a select few, those who memorize the whole Bible, who have a clean diet, who follow all the rules. There's no way, Jesus, that God loves tax collectors, sinners, Samaritans, Jews, Caucasians, Hispanics, Chinese. There's no way, God, you only love Jews. So this would have been shocking for him. See, Nicodemus thinks God's love is narrow and small. But what we see from this text is that God's love is both deep and wide, and he has a capacity to love many, many children from many different places. Uh, So Jesus goes on, he says this. He says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. His only begotten son. So according to God's definition of love, God gives his best and he sends his best. This word begotten is usually not used in our culture today, right? Uh, You beget something. But what it means is it's precious. Jesus is priceless. He's unique. He's the only one. It means it's God's best. This is shocking because we tend to give ourselves the best, right? You get a paycheck. Hey, honestly, most of the money is going to go to myself, right? That's just how we are. We give the leftovers to others, or we only give to those who will benefit us. And so this message is shocking. See, I run into so many churches, and they don't send their best. You guys, you guys know what I'm talking about? You go to some of these churches, and they go send missionaries or church planners out, but usually they pick like the weirdest, most awkward person in the church, and they're like, man, that guy Larry, we like can't stand him. We should totally send him to China. Don't you guys think that's a great idea? And everyone's like, let's do it. We'll even give him money. We need to get that guy out of here, right? And so I've seen in churches all over, we don't send our best, but what we see from God is his love is different. He sends his best. He sends Jesus Christ on a rescue mission to save us. We also see in the Greek word here for love, he uses the word agape, which is sacrificial love. It's a type of love and giving that actually hurts. It's something humans generally run away from, love that hurts. Next, it says, whoever believes in him. That's kind of a shocking statement to Nicodemus. What do you mean, whoever believes? No, it's only those who are Jews. So what we see, God's new definition of love, is that he has the widest welcome and the easiest escape. Think about that. This means God's love is the most inclusive love in the world. He says all tribes, tongues, people, slave, free, black, white, male, female, all social classes, come to me. And this would have been shocking to Nicodemus. Now, this doesn't mean that God will save all people. Yes, his love is the most inclusive love in all the world. But we also see it's very exclusive. It's exclusive. This love works only under one condition. You believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. And what's so shocking to religious people, especially to Nicodemus, is they're saying this is too inclusive, Jesus, and this is too easy. I don't like it. It's too inclusive and it's too easy. Why? Because anyone can believe, right? A child can believe. 
Like Beth said, you don't need to be a Hebrew scholar to believe. You don't need to grow up in the church to believe. You don't need to be an American to believe. You don't need to grow up on the right side of the town to believe. You believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You place your faith in him. You trust him in life and death. And the scripture says you're saved. The easiest escape. And it doesn't stop. Next, he says, whoever believes will not perish. So we see God's love is a rescue mission. This love saves you from separation from God and gives you the priceless possession of eternal life with God. So I'm just going to recap. In the world, worldly love, it's selfish. It only gives leftovers. It always has impure motives. It only loves what benefits oneself, and it's temporary. But God's love is that he uses all of his authority to love sacrificially, to give you his best with the purest motives, with the widest welcome, to provide the easiest escape that frees you from prison, that's free of charge, and gives you a reward that lasts forever. His love never stops. It's unending. It's constant. Even the brightest stars will burn out. But God's love for his children will never cease. So that's how God loves. That's a new definition. But now I want to look at my second point. That's how he loves. Let's look at why God loves like this. Let's look at the second point. Why God loves us differently. Let's look at verse 17 and 18. It says this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. So why did God send Jesus into the world? It says not to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through him. And then he says something that's crazy shocking, especially to our culture. Jesus doesn't need to condemn the world because right now the world is already condemned. And honestly, this is a shocking statement that the world is condemned. But when we look at the world and we're honest with ourselves, we can see that the world is falling apart. You're aging, you're dying, work is really hard. For some of you, finances are really tight. Having a family is really hard. And all of this is a result of a world cursed by sin. So the big question that comes up from this passage, how can a loving God also be angry and condemn? See, we think, man, love has zero anger, right? That's kind of the idea of God. He can't have any anger. That's not loving. But if God doesn't oppose evil, is he really good? If God doesn't oppose evil, is he really loving? I want you guys to think of an example. Uh, I want you guys to imagine there's like this, uh, this business and the owner who runs it is extremely racist, right? He pays the minorities less. He takes advantage of them. He bu- abuses them. If they get hurt, he doesn't take uh, care of them. He's just an evil, evil man. Now, I want you to imagine he gets found out. He goes before the judge. I want you to imagine the judge just says, it's all right, I just love that guy. You know, I'm a judge. My job is just to be loving. I think I'm just going to let it slide. Wouldn't you be furious if you heard that? You would be angry, right? Because evil needs to be opposed. God put that in your heart. See, we would need a judge that would condemn this act, throw this guy in jail, reward the oppressed, and bring justice, right? 
So God's justice and anger towards evil, it's an expression of his love. It's not in opposition to his love. God's the perfect father, the perfect judge. And I think we have a problem with God being angry because we know how we are when we're angry, right? Uh, Our anger is usually selfish. Our love is usually selfish. And so when we blow up in anger, it's honestly kind of embarrassing, right? You blow up, you do something crazy, and then you try to like excuse and say, you know, I was angry. That really wasn't me. But yeah, you know, the scary thing is actually was you. You did do that. And we always have these anger hangovers, right? You feel regret. So I'm thankful for something my mom did when I was growing up. Uh, when we would throw temper tantrums as a little kid, my mom would actually just film us. And then, and then later she would make us watch them. <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, I really look that dumb when I'm angry? And so from a young age, I realized like I'm so selfish that usually anger is not good, right? But God is perfect, so his anger is always good. Our anger is usually mixed. And so let me unpack this idea just a little bit more, that love can be full of truth and condemnation and anger because God's love is very passionate. See, love without anger or truth, I would say it's actually harmful. You guys think about a parent. You guys have all seen this before. Some of you grew up this way. Um, But imagine there's a parent that just lets all their kids' bad deeds go unpunished or unchallenged. Uh, Drake told me this. They're called lawnmower parents, right? They just mow down any opposition, and they never want their kids to suffer. They never want their kids to be challenged. They make everything easy for them. And that parent is like, I really love my kids. That's why I do it. But you watch that, and you're like, that's not loving. There's no boundaries. I feel like that kid is actually being neglected, right? See, a kid without boundaries is not loved. Wickedness here, it says, needs to be challenged. Uh, The Greek word for wickedness here means lowly, subhuman, animal-like behavior, or paltry. It's not living how God made you. It contradicts God, doesn't lead to life, and leads to death. And so when someone lies to you, you should challenge them, right? If you find someone cheating on their spouse, you should challenge them. If you find somebody getting drunk, you should challenge them and warn them of what that will do to them. You must oppose wickedness. And so God does this because he loves us. So God opposing evil is a good thing. Do you see it? Hope we can all agree on that. God opposing evil is a good thing. And so we see God's love is better. It's full of truth. It's full of grace. And I want you guys now, let's just take this parent thing a little bit further. Think about how you grew up, right? Uh, Your parents were imperfect. We can't blame them for our problems. They did the best they could, right? But when I think about parenting, you usually gravitate to one or two, either love or either truth, right? Maybe they were all loving, and there was no discipline or truth. And you feel a bit neglected. Parents just let you do whatever you wanted. And as a result, you're not very resilient. When something challenge, challenging happens, you don't really know what to do. Your parents did everything for you. You had lawnmower parents, like Drake said. They just mowed down everything. And so when God says no, you can get really upset in life. You're just used to getting your way, right? Now I want you to think of the other kind of parenting. It was all truth, and it was all anger, right? Some of your parents said no. All the time. They made life really hard for you. They really disciplined you. And you kind of feel tough now, right? Like you can go through anything. You don't feel neglected, but 
But you kind of do feel a little bit abused, right? Because it was all truth. There was no grace or love. And now as a result, maybe you see God just as some angry parent ready to smash you and discipline you, and you think that's what God's like. You're afraid of messing up. But what God shows us here is that he loves perfectly with truth and with love. He doesn't abuse us. He doesn't spoil us. He doesn't neglect us. And this perfect love meets at the cross. So there's the two wrong views of God's love. One is, hey, God just loves people no matter what. He'll just let you do whatever you want. Who cares about sin? You just do you. But that's not loving. That will lead to a destructive life. And some people have this wrong view of God that all he is is anger. He's not gentle. He's not compassionate. All he wants to do is destroy you. He doesn't care about you. But I'm here to say Jesus and God, they aren't just one of these. They're both together. It's a perfect love of truth and grace. He won't abuse you. He won't neglect you. His love is perfect. And this is what happened at the cross. I love what the great theologian John Stott said. This is a really deep thought. It's going to be on um, the projector screen. I want you guys to just really analyze this. It says this. Man asserts himself against God. This is sin. And puts himself where only God deserves to be. King of your life, decide what's right and wrong. But God sacrifices himself for man by sending Jesus. And puts himself where only man deserves to be. See, God's love, it's the only love that removes the cancer of our sin without destroying us. He opposes our evil, that's in all of our hearts, but at the same time, he welcomes us in through Jesus Christ. How does this happen? It's only through the cross. See, our sin was placed on Jesus. He took the punishment we deserve. We deserve to be at the cross, but he took our place died on the cross, was buried, rose again, and now welcomes us in by faith who will make us clean and make us right with God through faith. Now, one of the ways I like to think of this, I I read this example. I was reading a history story. Used to be a history teacher. True story. There was an American troop transport ship that was going from North America to Europe. 902 people on the ship. Uh, Now, the Germans didn't like that all these American troops were showing up to Europe, so they'd send these U-boats, and this torpedo hit this troop ship, put a hole in it, and it started to sink. And I don't know why, who planned this, but there were only 230 life vests on the ship. Well, there were four chaplains, three Christians and one Jewish chaplain, and they were all given life vests because they're the chaplains, right? They're officers. They have four life vests. As the ship is sinking, they look at each other and say, man, we can't wear these and watch other people die. So they take off their life vests. They give them to other people. And you can only tread water for so long in the Atlantic and they die. But four people got to walk again. One of the survivors would later say this, it was the finest thing I have seen or hope to see on this side of heaven. Here's the truth, church. Jesus drowned under the weight of our sin and gives us his righteousness, takes it off and gives it to us so that we can live forever in the presence of God, that we can walk again. Which leads to my third point, walking in the light. Okay, I feel like I've given you guys a lot of facts about love, that God's love is bigger, God's love is deeper, uh, in every way God's love is better. But over and over the Bible says God's love is to be experienced. His perfect love casts out fear. Uh, there's a psalm that says God's love is even better than life 
itself. Isn't that amazing? So here's the truth, church. God's love, if you understand it, if you taste it, if you know it, it has the potential and the power for us to face anything in life that would normally crush a normal human being. That's the power of God's love. But I think one of the problems is in the church is we hear this word, believe in Jesus, and we just think it's this intellectual acknowledgement. Yeah, in my mind, I believe Jesus is God and he rose again. I believe it. I acknowledge that that is true. But this word belief means something different. It means that it moves you to trust God with all your life, and you've experienced this love and truth yourself. You don't just think God loves you. You know he loves you. See, a Christian is someone who's concluded that the greatest treasure is the holy love of a father given to you through Christ Jesus. Why? Because only God's love can free you. Only God's love can heal you. His is the only love that will restore you. His is the only love that will reconcile you to God. And I love what these verses say. His love illuminates all of our life. Let's look at John 3.21. It says this, But whoever does what is true, remember, these guys are having a conversation at night. Whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And the truth is, church, everyone is trying to find love. Everyone is living for something. Everyone, you could say, is walking in darkness, and they're trying to walk in the light. And they say, if I get this, if I just get this, if I get this, then life will be clear. My life will be illuminated. But verse 20, the verse right before this says, people often love the darkness more than the light. Isn't that crazy? People would rather walk in darkness than walk in the light. Uh, Me and my wife watched a movie recently. It's the number one movie on Netflix. A 56-year-old Julia Roberts is in it. And I love her dialogue that she's having this conversation with this teen. And she says, you know what I found after living in the city for a long time? I hate people. I hate my life. I hate myself. All people try to do in this world is screw each other over, get money, and I hate it. I hate my life. I'm living in darkness. Life has no meaning. And I was just thinking of that, and I was like, that's so true. Without Christ, this is how bleak our existence is as humans. We're walking around in the dark, trying to get things that can't create light to create light, and we're disappointed over and over again. I love what these verses say. It says, the love of God is to be experienced, known, and understood. It's what will illuminate your life. And you can compare it and see how it's better than everything else in your life. So you can know it. I remember asking my dad once about his dad. And I said, Dad, did your dad, my grandpa, did he ever say, son, I love you? I'm proud of you? And my dad was like, I never heard him say that one time. I think it was just a different generation. But I knew he loved me. He'd take me fishing. He took care of me. He even came and visited me a few times at the university. It was interesting. He never said those words. But my dad said, I knew he loved me. So how can we know the love of God? Think of it like this. How many of you guys like crumble cookie? All right. It's pretty good. I was looking at the flavors today. There's like this chocolate cake one that looks amazing. Um, But I want you guys to think of it like this. God's love like a crumble cookie, okay? If you buy a crumble cookie or someone buys it for you and you just put it on top of your head, put it in your hat, you'll be able to smell it. But that'd be, if you just left it there, it'd be kind of disappointing, right? 
It's not meant just to be smelled. Um, all right, so the next thing you could do to experience it a little bit more, you could take that crumble cookie, take it off your head, and hold it in your hand and feel that it's nice and warm and gooey and the chocolate chips are kind of melting on your fingers and you're like, oh man, I'm so excited, right? But if you just kept it right there, that'd be pretty disappointing too, right? It was meant to be, yes, touched and felt and smelled. But ultimately, to enjoy that cookie, you have to taste it. You have to bring it into yourself. And I love how the Psalms say, taste and see that the Lord is good. And so many of us just hold the love of God in our head or at a distance in our hands, and we don't really taste or know the love of God. And this is why the passage says people love the darkness more than the light, because they don't know or enjoy the love of God. I have a few examples of how this looks, even in our lives, how we tend to love the darkness more than the light. All right, maybe this story resonates with you. It was kind of true in my life for a while. Imagine you're a Christian, all right, you claim to know Jesus, and imagine you go through a breakup, okay? You're really sad. You're really heartbroken. And it hurts. It should hurt, right? But I want you to imagine like six years go by and you still feel rejected. You still don't feel loved. And you go to church and you hear God loves you, but really all you are is depressed and sad. What's going on? You're keeping God's love at a distance. You're not tasting God's love. And then there's the kid this has been true in a lot of people I discipled in their lives. Their parents wanted them to go to a really good school, right? And get a really good job. But what happened in this kid's life? They dropped out of school. Maybe they are just a blue-collar worker, which is great. But your parents are disappointed in you. So you don't feel loved. You feel like a disappointment. You feel discouraged and like, yeah, even though my parents live 10 hours away from me, I'm just such a failure. And I know God loves me but I just can't get over this idea that my parents don't approve of me. So what's happening? What's happened? Why isn't the love of God doing anything in this person's life? And the ultimate reason that the love of God in that moment isn't comforting you, giving you courage, taking away your fear, or giving you confidence in the midst of pain is because you're still looking for the ultimate love in all the wrong places. So what can we do? Number one, the scriptures say, come in to the light to believe. And the coolest thing that I see in the scriptures about belief is it says meditate on God's love. Meditate on God's word. Now you might say, what is meditation? Am I going to do like a yoga pose and make some weird noises? No. All right. Meditation is when you think about it and you appraise it. A commentary said you appraise the love of God. Now I love appraisers and I like real estate. I think it's a cool hobby, but I'm thankful for appraisers because they keep you safe they keep you in reality, right? You want to buy a house in Colorado, they're always trying to rip you off. They're like, yeah, that two-bedroom house with one bathroom and the roof's falling, it's 850000 You're like, oh my gosh, that's crazy, right? But then the, the appraiser comes and it's like, yeah, it's only worth like four fifty, and you're like, still feels kind of high. But okay, thank you for the truth, all right? You're thankful for appraisers when you live in Colorado. But I'm here to tell you, Jorgen, greatest real estate agent ever, if he got together with the appraiser and you asked them this question, hey, what's the worth of the love of God? And they pull out their calculators, they start running some numbers, and they're like, well, you owe zero, but God gives you one with so many zeros that's so high, it breaks their calculator. And when they show you how valuable the love of God is, when you meditate on it, when you appraise it, when you consider it, and you know how loved you are, 
It's going to give you clarity in life. It's going to illuminate everything in your life. And you're going to see you have a purpose. You know where you came from. You know where you're going. And you know God's love's not going to stop. Even when you hit life's hardest and deepest, most painful moments of your life, you know it's going to be with you through it all. And then you can compare it to people and things in the world. You can take that value and compare it to everything else. And what it's going to do is our expectations of people are going to start to change. And this is why over and over the scriptures say, forgive people. The love of people is small. See, one of the reasons you might be hurt, this is why I'm often hurt, is we expect someone else to love us, and they can't. And only Jesus can really love us like that. But when we understand the love of God, we can forgive people. So here's a good truth. This is a hard truth. Stop expecting other people and other things to complete you. Don't put that pressure on other people. Instead of trying to get this completion from people, when you know the love of God, you can actually start to serve them and love them and love like God loves, where you expect nothing in return. And you know what happens? I love what John says in a different letter. He says, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So here's the truth, church. When we are loved, then we are changed and we walk in the light. We can love other people and we can begin to experience real harmony because Christ is at the center. And I love that Jesus said, the world will know that you're my disciples by what? How flashy you are, how successful you are, how rich you are. No, by how you love one another. Will it hurt? Yes, absolutely. Will it cost you? Yes. To stay in community, the amount of forgiveness you're going to have to go through, it will hurt. But is it better than living in fear? Absolutely, 100%. So come to the light. Walk in the truth. Taste and see that the love of God is real. And it'll be a great Christmas season for you. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that by the power of your spirit, we could know the love of God. That, Lord, when we feel like giving up, when we feel like holding a grudge, when we feel like quitting, when we feel like sinning, we would see that your love is better, that we would be an unshakable people, an unshakable church, Lord, that things that would normally destroy people, somehow, some way, your love would get us through it all, that we could be your faithful servants, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.